It was a Sunday morning. I had just preached a sermon that dipped more than just a toe in the water of what has come to be known as social justice. I think the issue was a referendum that was up for vote in our community about whether or not we should change the name of our local high school, Robert E. Lee High School, to something else like Riverside High School. Our section of the city was called Riverside. This was the Deep South. And in that sermon, among other things, I noted that over 80% of the student body of Robert E. Lee High School were black and that no black child should ever have to enter a school each day under a sign honoring someone who had fought to keep their ancestors in slavery. I shared some relevant scripture from both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament that I believed made it plain that an authentic follower of Jesus could do no less than to remove that reminder of slavery and ongoing racial injustice from that school. Following the worship service, as I was greeting congregants on their way out the door, a 92-year-old sainted member of the church took my hand in his, fixed me in his gaze, a gaze that was always loving, if not always approving, and he said to me, you were meddling this morning, preacher. You were meddling. So, loved ones, I might be fixing the metal again. I'm Bruce, and this is a bigger story. Meddling is what an older generation of Southern churchgoers called it when they felt like a preacher had gone too far afield of how they understood our remit, our job. And if something was getting voted on in the community and a preacher talked about it, we could be accused of, and were, of meddling in politics even though many political issues are also issues of faith. I'm recording this episode five days before Election Day in the United States. It's called in the U.S. a midterm election because it falls halfway through a U.S. president's term. And this particular midterm election is happening at a time in U.S. history where U.S. Americans are at least as, if not more, politically and socially divided than we've ever been, at least since the U.S. Civil War. So here's how I'm going to meddle. I absolutely am not going to suggest for whom to vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Although I think the differences between competing candidates couldn't be starker in the U.S. than they are presently. But I do feel on solid enough ground to suggest what kinds of things to think about for this and other elections in the U.S. and elsewhere. A Christian understands the Bible as the Word of God, divine revelation. How that works exactly varies a lot among different Christian tribes, but in general, if you're a Christian, what the Bible says is of more than passing importance to you. There's an overarching narrative theme to the Bible, and that theme is nowhere better described than in the song that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke when she learns that she's pregnant with Jesus the Christ child. Mary sings this song, My soul magnifies the Lord. So right there, what does it mean to magnify something? To increase its size. So whatever it is you believe about the Lord, about God, magnifying that would mean making sure that there is more of it, more of God, more of whatever it is you believe God intends for the world. In Mary's case, she sings about those things that she believes about God, and they include God scatters the proud, brings down the powerful from their thrones, and lifts up the lowly. And bringing down the powerful and lifting up the lowly, I don't think it's a reversal because that would only eventually lead to a new set of lowly 
the ones brought down low are now low, and even potentially there'd be a new set of proud and powerful if the lifted up lowly ones forget their humble origins. So instead of reversing the powerful and the lowly, what if God is leveling the playing field so that all are on equal footing? I think that's worth thinking about. So let's get back to Mary's song. Mary sings, God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. So, so far, lifting up the lowly, feeding the hungry. And then turn a few chapters in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 4. By this time, Jesus is born. He's all grown up, and he's preaching his first sermon in a synagogue. And he chooses to read from the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophet Isaiah. And it went like this. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You can start to hear these themes emerge, bring good news to the poor. And that's not a spiritualized good news. That's a concrete good news. Good news as in the things about your poverty that are preventing you from living in dignity and wholeness have just been taken care of. It's about feeding the hungry. Check. Good news to the poor. Check. Release to the captives. There were many who were unjustly imprisoned, and even among those who may have been in prison for a good reason, many were given harsher sentences because they were poor and powerless. And a rich person who had done the same thing as the poor person had done had the resources to bond themselves out or to buy influence, bribe their way out. Those kind of things never happen today. Let me get my tongue out of my cheek. Another theme you hear as we go from Mary's song to Jesus' first sermon, to let the oppressed go free. And then this last one is interesting, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This has a very technical meaning. When Jesus refers to proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, he's talking about the proclamation of what was called a jubilee year. Seven is a perfect number in the Bible. So seven times seven is like perfection doubled. So what perfection looks like, according to the Isaiah passage from which Jesus is preaching, is that every 49 years, seven times seven, every 49 years, slaves and prisoners were to be freed, debts, all debts were to be forgiven, And to those who lost their land because of an inability to pay a debt sometime over the previous 49 years, they got their land back. Debt forgiveness. It's in the Hebrew Scripture. And when Jesus finishes reading this passage, he says, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. People are amazed. He stood up in the temple and said, This isn't just some 500-year-old Bible story that we're all going to listen to, pay lip service to, say amen, and go out to brunch. He said it is fulfilled today, now. It's as operative today as it ever was. The Bible also gets pretty specific about immigrants. Some examples from the biblical books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and some others. This is God speaking. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift against those who thrust aside the immigrant. And another time, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And another time, this is an actual Bible verse, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. 
Love the sojourner, the migrant, therefore, for you once were sojourners, migrants yourselves in the land of Egypt. And again, this is a verse that seems to say that there are no illegal humans. You shall treat the alien who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And wage fairness shows up in the Bible. This is God again. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift against those who oppress the hired worker in his or her wages. Health care is addressed. This is Jesus. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And that as a result, not of a health care industrial complex, but as a matter of humanity and justice and love and care for one's neighbors. Let's talk about that concept of justice just a little more. This is a fairly well-known passage from the prophet Micah. God has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Doing justice and loving mercy are different things. They're similar but different. Mercy is, for example, seeing someone who is hungry and feeding them or seeing someone who is unhoused and providing them a home. That's mercy. Justice is different. Justice is, to paraphrase the late Archbishop and Nobel Laureate Desmond Tutu, justice is going back upstream and addressing what is causing people to fall into the river of hunger or homelessness, of poverty to begin with. And that Micah passage challenges us to do both to be merciful, to come to the immediate aid of a person in need, and also to figure out and address what caused them to be in need to begin with so that they and future generations won't be in that need anymore. And I don't know if you caught it, but I sort of gave myself away a few seconds ago when I said that that Micah passage about mercy and justice challenges us. I made that real time. I made it right now, not just some 500-year-old Bible story. And so let's say you're trying to figure out what referenda to vote for or against that might be on a ballot for you in an election. You're trying to figure out which candidate should get your vote. Some of the questions you might ask, is there a connection between my faith, if you have a faith, and my politics? Or are they completely and totally separate? And we're not talking church or state here. We're talking about personal faith and personal choices. Oh, and that's good to consider too. Faith is personal, but that is different than saying that faith is private. Faith is personal because if it's authentic faith, faith as fidelity to a set of spiritual, religious understandings and commitments, then that faith should deeply inform our personal choices. It's personal. But faith is not private, at least not Christian faith. It's personal, but it's not private. It's always personal, and it's always communal. Just rewind and listen to those passages from Hebrew Scripture and from Jesus, and there's nothing private in there. It's almost never just between us and our Maker. It is personal, and it's also communal, but not private. Some more questions we could take into a voting booth with us. If my faith is supposed to inform my choices, including the ones I make in a voting booth, to what extent is my faith 
supposed to inform my choices? Totally? Or as one of other factors? How do I prioritize concerns about policy, philosophy of government, politics, power, principles, and the claims of my faith on my life? And then let's say you or I decide that we're all in, that it's faith and faith alone that should determine our choices. Then the question becomes, who among those I might vote for, which ones have the policies and approaches that would most bring to reality the principles and calls of my faith, like feeding the hungry, or the right approach, according to my faith, to immigrants? I have some friends, close friends, I describe as amazingly successful, and I've noticed a common trait among them. They are laser-focused. They are deeply committed to their field, to their work, and to those they serve. They are all in. That is, I think, one of the challenges for those who might call ourselves Christian. Are we all in? Or are we in on Sundays? Or when we remember to think about it? Or when radical adherence to the way of Jesus doesn't get in the way of other things that we're committed to? This is one of the problems Christianity in the West is struggling with right now. What exactly does it mean to be a Christian? How does my faith inform my choices? How does my faith inform my decisions on how to cast my votes at election time? Which choices in the voting booth most align with my faith? Or maybe part of your faith is that your faith and your politics are never supposed to touch. If it's that last one, okay, but I don't think we can separate it all out and still say we're all in. The late 19th, early 20th century Catholic Christian philosopher G.K. Chesterton said it really well. The great ideals of the past failed not by being overly lived out, but by not being lived enough. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting it has been found difficult and left untried. Or another Roman Catholic writer and one-time priest, Brennan Manning, he once wrote, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And if any or all of that makes you feel just a little uncomfortable or more, welcome to the club. And have fun thinking through those questions and how they might or might not relate to you. I think our wrestling with those questions can lead us into a bigger story. Stay in touch. Bruce at BruceCole.tv. Remember you are loved.